Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. John, if if the cross that is the means that God transforms evil uh, into the supreme good and violence and chaos into perfect peace, how does that understanding of the of the cross condition resurrection life? This is what's interesting about Doran's idea is that he's claiming that, or I guess this is Lonergan really, but that this idea that the law of the cross transforms evil into the supreme good. That's quite a claim. I mean, in some sense, you know, evil is a nothing. Of course, Doran knows that and is an agreement there. But it's to say that those good things about us or the being that we have, the relationships that we have that are in some way perverted or even what is lacking in us uh, by the cross is transformed into the supreme good. So he is he's characterizing really our experience of theosis or deification. Uh, by this uh, this law of the cross, which is you know a hard pill to swallow for a lot of us ex- existentially, it may it sounds really nice, and I think it well it's the heart of the gospel, it's the truth of the gospel, but it isn't necessarily easy to live out. This idea that of course uh, we would love our enemies, and even as we do this, even as we love our enemies, we share the love of God in such a way that we both become the love of God and we draw others into a community that is defined by the love of God. What's nice uh, about this notion is that it has recourse to uh, patristic understandings about how the incarnation is fundamental to what God is doing in the world. And this, this goes back to last week as well, that I, I kept trying to perhaps unclearly make the, the assertion that Chalcedon or the Chalcedonian definition of who Jesus is is crucial to allowing all of this to have real meaning in our lives. And I think that remains true for this conversation, such that the the incarnation reveals to us the Father by whom creation exists and the Son through whom creation exists. And in that revealing, we're also, or all of humanity, is recapitulated into the life of the Son of God and thus into the life of the Trinity. Uh, That's an amazing thought such that there's no abstract way that Jesus does this. Jesus does this by instituting a community. You know, Jesus isn't the isolated hero that comes to save the world. When God shows up as a human, the first thing that God does is draw other people to himself and forms a community. And that community extends to all sorts of people who would normally be left out, even people who would have been uh, you know, enemies to the gospel when they, when they start following Jesus, quite literally with the Apostle Paul. So I think something very large is afoot when we're talking about how does the cross accomplish these things. And the, it always seems counterintuitive, right? Because the idea that, oh, by loving our enemies and by showing love to those who hate us, uh, we will actually, in the end, be a part of the victory of God would seem counterintuitive to people who have been trained to think that the biggest you know, demonstration of force or power uh, or the greatest accumulation of wealth is what's going to provide you security. We're saying just the opposite. But when we say the opposite and when we embody this idea, when we embody the law of the cross and when we live, uh, when we allow the Holy Spirit or we consent Uh, to the Holy Spirit making Christ's life present in our own lives, and we grow in these habits, 
the result of that really is that we begin to access the infinite love of God in all of our relationships. So no longer when we encounter the other do we imagine that what is being asked of us is ever more than what we as finite people are able to give, but we realize that what is being asked of us in our relationship both to creation and to other human beings is simply to give of the infinite love of God that is already springing up within us. So Paul and, uh, and then John, why do you think that the incarnation is largely overlooked in favor of, you know, the atonement and to what detriment? Well, I think that because of the discussion we're having, that atonement is usually taken as a kind of entity unto itself in a theory focused on justification. Obviously, that's the case in penal substitution. But I think you can work on back that there are many theories of the atonement. Actually, I was counting. There's some 20 theories of the atonement. Some would be contradictory, some would not, you know, different ways of describing this. But what tends to happen then is that the in many of these understandings, the atonement, as in uh, the, the peculiarly bad ones, is in some way isolated uh, an isolated event in the mind of God, you know, that it's exchanged between the Father and the Son. There'd be various ways of reduplicating that which I think is an error. And so you end up with a focus then on not the life of Christ. You know, we don't quite know what to do with the life of Christ once we make atonement theory the focus. And here, I think when people talked about the cross, or when Paul talked about the cross, he's going to talk about that he didn't mean to exclude the entire sweep of who Christ is. But the understanding is of the cross is that that's the center of Christ, that you'll have the early church fathers, in fact, focusing on the cross as really the beginning point of fulfillment of incarnation. So that the birth is not emphasized. Christmas was not emphasized. The cross was emphasized. And even the birth of Christ is going to be interpreted and understood on the basis of the cross. So we can certainly talk about the centrality of the cross. But unfortunately, what has happened historically is that has become an entity separate from the life of Christ and also separate in many ways from an organic connection to the resurrection of Christ. You know, just as we, we don't know what to do with his life before, we don't know what to do with his life after. So that resurrection, instead of being a realized victory, you know, that is the description of the Christian's victory, is entry into resurrection. The resurrection is just kind of a capstone. Oh, sacrifice accepted, law fulfilled and the resurrection is made a sign that is in some ways disconnected from the organic movement of the life, death, resurrection of Christ. So I think that our bad atonement theory isolates atonement from the movement of the work of Christ. The work of Christ is the incarnation. It's the whole movement of who he is. And the cross then is not a separate activity but it's integrated, it's organic with who Christ is, but also with the human predicament. 
And so I think once we get our description, once we make the move away from a kind of failed or wrong atonement theory, I think then we can reintegrate the incarnation. You know, what is the final point, the fulfilling point of the incarnation? The cross. The atonement then is should not be isolated. The, the whole movement is a movement of reconciliation, you know, at one moment, of bringing us into a, a oneness. It's defeating, it's breaking down the walls of hostility in Paul's language and creating a new people. And that's not found in any, you know, you can't isolate. That's not simply an exchange between the Father and the Son. Yeah, I, I think that's great. Uh, I would support every, what Paul said 100%. That I think uh, what happens, oddly enough, in the isolating of the doctrine of atonement, and that's mainly been done by scholars, is that you actually lose what the word itself might mean. That we no longer are talking about uh, you know, the way in which we get brought into a life that's at union and a harmony with God, but we end up talking about a transaction. Not all, I mean, not only do the theories tend to reflect a transaction somehow just between the Father and the Son, but also they point to then doctrines of justification uh, or the way of we might understand justification and sanctification together is to be transactional for human beings with God too, which I think that whole conversation is just wrong-headed. If we think about the incarnation, rather, what we're left with is a much bigger picture and as Paul said, it's it's rightly summed up in the cross, but it's a much bigger picture that's inclusive of all, all of human life. How are, and this is true in Paul's metaphors. It's also uh, true in the Gospels, but in Paul's metaphors, he'll talk about being crucified with Christ. Well, even though you know Christ's crucifixion is one historical point in his life, I don't think any of us understand that to be one particular point in our lives that we live into our baptisms. Uh, you know, it's not. Oh, it was all taken care of one day when I got crucified and I've been sinless perfect ever since. We realize that's not the reality uh, when we're talking about our own relationships with God. Also, another interesting thing that Paul said that I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about in this direction, but I'd like to add something to it, is this idea that the early church um, did not, you know, Christmas wasn't the major feast or celebration that it has become. But I think what's interesting about that is that Partially, not because of the beginning of Jesus's life wasn't taken seriously. It wasn't that they were focusing on the crucifixion, you know, overemphasizing it over the rest of Jesus's life. But another feast was very important to early Christians, still is important to a lot of Christians, is the Annunciation. And I guess perhaps because Protestants have such an allergy to you know, devotion to Mary, um, this feast just gets overlooked completely. But the Annunciation is a feast of our Lord, right? It's the angel Gabriel showing up to Mary and giving this proclamation and Mary, uh, by faith, becoming a part of the divine mission. But what's being proclaimed is already the victory that is won uh, by the cross. So the, the incarnation in that sense is of a peace, a victory over sin and death. But more so even, it is the, the mission of God to bring humanity into union and friendship with God such that we participate in the life of the Trinity. Yeah. And I would just add to that, that I think the a big reason why the incarnation is largely overlooked in favor of the atonement ultimately is because, you know, as human beings, we're selfish. 
the story is ultimately about us. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we understand the atonement to be first and foremost is a resolution to our problem that, oh, you know, oh, we messed up, we sinned and we're going to die and go to hell. And the atonement takes care of us. Whereas uh, the incarnation is focused more on what it looks like to be completely and totally Mm -hmm. united with God. I mean, Jesus is uh, absolutely united to his father. We tend, I think, to look at all this stuff, or at least, you know, I know I have, is to look at it in a much more selfish light. It's hard work. Theosis does not come easy. Holiness does not come easy. Um, Repentance. I can believe in a theory of an atonement and even praise God and say, thank you, Lord, for, for dying for my sins and making everything right and for saving me and really mean it. But to become like Jesus, you know, to be fully submitted to the will of God, to be holy, to love my enemies, to love my neighbor, to love God with all my mind and heart and soul and strength. It's a lot easier to believe in an atonement theory and to subscribe to that and say, thank you, Lord, than to actually do the hard work of repenting of my sins and becoming more like Christ. And so, uh, Paul, I want to, before we go, I want to turn a little bit to, uh, to Douglas Campbell and bring his voice into our discussion as we wrap it up here. But in his discussion of a, of a God of love and the Pauline dogmatics, Campbell argues that Christians are to mediate the revealed love of God to the world, right? That, that's sort of the point. So what does it mean to mediate a revealed truth such as God's love? Yeah, that's a huge question. And in a way, Campbell is presenting a, a kind of beautiful picture there, but there's a sense in which his whole theology is wrapped up in answering this question. What is it that's being revealed and over and against what? So he uses the word apocalyptic. And the idea of an apocalyptic is an unveiling. What it means that something is unveiled is that it was previously covered. And this is the problem of the human predicament, is that we've believed a lie, that we're deceived, or in our imagined sophistication, we're we're wrong, that human wisdom is precisely foolishness before God. So what has been unveiled is God himself, and that that's what is obstructed, by the grab for life on the basis of human knowing or human understanding. That is, you're really obstructing access to who God is. So the unveiling, the apocalyptic revelation comes to us in Christ. And here you need to work out, you know, is Christ the Bible? Well, no, he's not the Bible, is he? He has not come to us so much in a book but he comes to us in community. He comes to us as a person and continues to be mediated through persons. There's no mystery to this. How did you come to know Jesus? Well, through somebody else, through other people. And the revelation then, in this sense, is a self-authenticating revelation. It is self-evident. It's not based on other evidentiary truths, that in fact would fall back into a kind of obstruction because that's not the nature of what's unveiled. What's unveiled to us is God. And we enter into experience of of God. And the way that we do that is in communion and community with other people. So that the way the truth is mediated to us, the way that God's love is mediated to us, and I'll get personal here, is through our relationship. If I didn't know you guys, or we, uh, our relationship in some way was obstructed, 
and became something different. That is that who I am is now conjoined to who you are. If it should happen that one of you get bit by the COVID virus, I'm sure that's the wrong metaphor, and die, in some way, I will be less than who I am. Certainly with my wife, with my children, that is that who any of us are in the love of God is to be mediated to us, revealed to us in this communion that we have as friends. You know, this is the the metaphors of the New Testament. They're family metaphors. Who is God? Well, God is a father and son, and the, the relationship between the two is definitive of who they are. That that relationship, communion, is who God is. And as we enter into communion and relationship and love, then we are experiencing who God is. But simultaneously, what is mediated to us is who we are. That is that we become fully ourselves only as we enter into this love of God. So that's why John gives us that succinct definition, God is love. You can't hate your neighbor whom you have seen and love God whom you've not seen. The way the love is mediated to us is through the neighbor. This changes everything. To my mind, this is the building block. This is the fundamental reality that as Christians we believe in. It's a beautiful, joyous reality. It is transformative. It will make who you are different. It will make you view other people different. Unfortunately, I think there is a Christianity. We all talk about love, but there is a Christianity that obstructs that love and that in some way makes it secondary. I mean, that's really the significance of this conversation, is that Christianity can, in fact, make you hateful. It can make you exclusive of others. In other words, it can be a very unloving thing, precisely because of the, the, the problems that we've described. This is the culminating question to everything. Uh, that Campbell gets it. He, he says it in a very simple way. You can mis- misunderstand some of these things and just imagine we've heard all this before. But I think you really don't hear it until you put all of these pieces of the puzzle into place. And once they're there, you know, to say it's an experiential reality, I don't mean to simply reduce it to that. This is the experience, though, of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, and Paul, that's, that, was, that was beautiful. So when God mediates himself or reveals his love to the world, he doesn't do so in, an, in a sort of second-order theory, but he does it in an embodied you know, person of Jesus Christ, right? So uh, in, a, in a primary first order reality of love mm-hmm. for enemies, you know, love for neighbor um, that culminates, of course, uh, in a life of, you know, you know, in a life of healing and of, and of sacrifice and ultimately of the cross and resurrection. And so in conclusion, guys, to, to wrap up a wonderful discussion. So why, why is the orientation of Whitman, right, uh, essential to our participation in what we've been calling resurrection life because God is love. We'll start with John. Witnesses here is helpful. The way I think about it, it, isn't, it doesn't let us off the hook, but it at least orders us in this conversation rightly to who Jesus is. 
So if we're witnesses, what we're saying is we aren't the savior of the world, but we're witnesses to the savior of the world who has been revealed to us and who has revealed God to us. Which means, and this is, goes directly to what Paul was just saying, as human beings, as the sort of finite creatures that we are, we can actually have things added to us and we can grow and we can become more human. Um, of course, that wouldn't be true of uncreated God. But that means something beautiful about our connection to other people, right? As we witness the love of God to others, we build relationships that make us more human. And our witness then of that love is more reflective of truth. It also, of course, means that we could go the other way. If we fail to be human, we will fail to be witnesses of the love of God. So I, I think that's the way witness works in this conversation, is it's to orient us to who God is in such a way that says, well, God is actually fundamental. God is love. We have that love within us. Uh, we exist in imitation of that love, and we're able to grow in it. And that provides a witness or a reflection back to who God is, such that we truly mediate, uh, you know, to use Campbell's framework and what Paul was saying again, we do mediate the true gospel by doing these things. And as we become more human, we mediate that truth uh, in a more, <laughs> we mediate that truth in a more true way. I don't know, that's probably redundant, but it is to say that we mediate God to the world in a more true way, that we become living icons and uh, we get better with, uh, maybe not with age, but we certainly get better with maturity. I guess I was just thinking that it's it's one thing, you know, to point, we, we, we began the discussion to talk about a sort of a contractual theology that we normally have with God, where it's like, well, if you want to get right with God and, and make everything okay, you need you need to sign these documents and get the get the contract figured out, you know, make sure you're on the right end of the, of the, of the deal. And it becomes, in other words, what I'm getting at is it becomes something very theoretical that you can have almost a theoretical, well, I'm a Christian, you know, theoretically I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, you know, but not when it comes to actually loving my enemies and things like this, or not when it uh, comes to actually imitating Jesus. And so I think that what we're talking about here um, with an embodied, the God of love, which is embodied mm -hmm. primarily, again, in Jesus loving mm -hmm. his enemy. To me, that's the, the linchpin of really the, the whole discussion. And, and that being peaceable even to his enemies and in mediating that love of God to the world through works of love. That's what it means for me to, to sort of be a, a witness, to reveal that truth that Jesus is Lord, is to imitate him and, and in so doing to be united with him, to becoming one with him. And so, Paul, if you want to take us out with your idea of witness as essential to our, our participation in the resurrection life of Christ, and then tell people where they can check us out at Forging Plowshares and maybe even how they can help, um, we'll give you the last word. That witness is a mode of telling the truth, but of course it is a, a very different notion of truth. So we wouldn't talk about witness in regards to water being H2O. Most propositional knowledge or truths are not things that we simply witness to. So when we say witness, we have a very different notion of the truth. There is the truth that is who God is in Christ, that the only mode of conveying this truth is to witness to mm -hmm. it. And that means several things. One is it is not simply propositional. 
That is, we can't reduce this to doctrines. We can't reduce it to theology. In other words, I can't, I can't simply, oh, let me give you the formula for who God is, or let me give you the formula for eternal life. You know, and I think that's in, in fact what we get in a kind of modernist Christianity. It's not a Christianity built on witness. It's a Christianity built on doctrines. And so what theology comes to mean is you line up your doctrines in the correct order and you adhere or you believe, you acknowledge these doctrines and you get saved. It's a misunderstanding of the truth. It's a misunderstanding of salvation and it's a misunderstanding of what it means to really be human. And so witness then puts us in a mode of this truth is not our truth. We don't own it. We can't reduce it, but we can witness to it. We don't have all of the truth, but we can share and we can point people toward this truth that, of course, is a person, that we are participants in this personhood. And so the idea of telling our story, I think, is quite important because what we have is a narrative reality that we've entered into and we witness to people, we tell people this story, it is its own self-evidential truth. That is, then, the mode of participation in you know the talk here. The question is about, I think you asked, how is that connected to resurrection life? Because now we've shifted the very way in which we know, the very way in which we're persons, and witness mm-hmm. then captures that because of love, that love is not something, you know, we could say the same thing about what it is we're witnessing to. We invite people in to this communion and this community and this experience of a lived truth, the love of God. The only way that that you can do that properly is as a witness. And so I think that is why it's only witness that captures then the proper mode of talking about this truth. All right. Amen. Uh, so, Paul, do you want to tell everyone where they can go to uh, to check out more about what they can find at Forging Plowshares and how they can help? We have a Patreon page that you can go to and donate through there. You can go through the website and you can donate through Outreach International. And, of course, we always appreciate if you would like us on whatever social media that you might be using and point other people to our podcasts and and to our webpage. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much for a great conversation. Wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. All right, God bless you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.